Welcome to the Trainer's Bullpen, where trainers in the law enforcement space come to hear experts talk about their work, experience, and research into human performance, particularly as it relates to the critical aspects of training motor learning and crisis decision-making. The purpose of the Trainer's Bullpen is to help bridge the gap between law enforcement training and the findings of academic research and current pedagogical best practice. Our desire at the Trainer's Bullpen is to help advance law enforcement training, make research applied, and improve officer and public safety. The Trainer's Bullpen is a production of Raptor Protection, and I'm Chris Butler, your host. Now, on to today's show. Welcome to Episode 6 of the Trainer's Bullpen. In this interview, Dr. Paula Denona from the University of Toronto discusses the findings and training implications of her research review, Complex Motor Learning and Police Training, Applied, Cognitive, and Clinical Perspectives. This study was published in Frontiers in Psychology in 2019. You can access a copy of this study by going to the Trainers Bullpen website at trainersbullpen.ca. The purpose of the review was to explore pedagogical best practices to bridge the gap between scientific knowledge of human performance and the best practices to consider for training complex motor skills in law enforcement. Ten vital aspects of the components of effective training are discussed, such as the role of pressure in training, psychological and emotional regulation, performance enhancement imagery, and the importance of error in training, among others. Grab your pen and paper. Be ready because there's lots of critical information in this fascinating interview. And it's my pleasure to welcome to the show, Dr. Paula Denota. Dr. Denota received her PhD in psychology from York University in 2017, specializing in brain, behavior, and cognitive sciences. Using multiple neuroimaging techniques and behavioral experiments, Paula's research showed how training and expertise shape brain activity and impact performance. As a postdoctoral fellow at the University of Toronto, Paula's current research focuses on complex relationships between stress, learning, performance, resilience, and health in police. She's trained and evaluated frontline, tactical, and military personnel from across Canada and Europe. Her ongoing collaborations with the Police University College of Finland identify effective educational practices for situational awareness and lethal force decision-making. Paula is also a member of the CIPSRT, a national research consortium that aims to support wellness and functioning in police and other public safety personnel. Paula's interdisciplinary research is published in top peer-reviewed journals in cognitive psychology, policing, and occupational health, and has been translated into actionable policy recommendations for evidence-based police education. Well, Dr. Denota, it is a pleasure to welcome you to the Trainer's Bullpen. Thank you for making the time to be with us here today. Absolutely, Chris. Thank you so much for inviting me and having me. So uh, when I uh, reached out and contacted you, or the, the reason that I did is of of course, I love I love to read research that people are doing in the the law enforcement space, or that can help law enforcement trainers. And one of the the papers I read was uh, one that you and a co-author published in Frontiers in Psychology. This was in August of 2019. 
called Complex Motor Learning and Police Training, Applied Cognitive and Clinical Perspectives. So Paula, um, we're going to get into a lot of uh, critical issues in this paper that, that you kind of talk about that can really help advance law enforcement training. But first, why don't you tell us, like, why did you choose uh, this topic uh, and why was it important to you? That's a great uh, question. So the the kind of birth of that paper, the origins of that paper really lie in my uh, my PhD dissertation work, um, which it, in and of itself, uh, like the individual chapters have been published as different different studies, but kind of putting the information all together, um, it wasn't really well known. It wasn't really anywhere. And coming from a neuroscience background and starting in, uh, in a research lab, uh, so at the University of Toronto, working with Dr. Judith Anderson, she's a health psychologist. She's been studying police for well over a decade uh, you know, I, I started seeing kind of commonalities and, and also gaps in knowledge in, um, in the policing field or for neuroscience and understanding learning and training and stress and how that specifically re relates in police. It wasn't really empirically studied. Uh, so really the motivation for that article was to kind of put information all in one place as a starting point for identifying gaps in knowledge. What do we need to do next? What do we know? What don't we know? Uh, and, and really critical to adding the police perspective from that is my, my co-authors, Chief Inspector Yuhamati Huhta. So he's a, uh, a use of force and tactics and stress management instructor at the Police University College of Finland, has over 20 years of operational experience in special units and canine and uh, tactical units, uh, and over 10 years as an instructor, and also has a master's and currently pursuing a PhD in education. So in terms of the pedagogy and how do we actually train these skills and uh, embed them in the brain in a way that very uniquely to police also, a lot of these skills, they need to be recalled and performed accurately under very, very high levels of stress. So it's not just the ordinary learning sitting in a classroom and you know passively learning something, uh, because from what I know about the brain and the body and what happens under stress, that, that's not going to work. And the research says the same thing. Uh, so again, the, re the real aim of that paper was to combine as many perspectives as possible to speak to uh, learning and training and motor performance in, in a police-specific context. Okay, and so the topics that you talk about in your paper, do you, did you select those because in your experience as a researcher, uh, you feel that those were the are the critical components that can really help improve motor learning in law enforcement? Yeah, so by understanding kind of the, the fundamentals, the basic principles of how your brain learns uh, and specifically motor behavior, that, that is what I focused on in my, uh, in my PhD. So complex movements, coordinated body movements. Uh, truth be told, my PhD research looked at ballet dancers, which you would think, well, what do they have to do with cops? But the more I've come into working with police officers, you know, since since 2017, I uh, learned that it's actually quite similar. You, you know, there's very little margin for error. You have to be very precise and exact in your movements. Uh, there's very rigorous training schedules. So especially for tactical officers, you're constantly training, uh, even when you're not on calls, running through scenarios and simulations and practice, practice, practice. So how that rewires the brain is very similar to ballet dancers. And 
and uh, anecdotally, in, in you know, some of my training experience with cops and, and seeing them do the scenarios, especially when they're in teams and watching how they move like very silently and uh, very coordinated. And they, like, they're literally operating as like one brain. The word that comes to my mind is graceful. Like I, it's actually like so impressive to, to watch how, uh, how police are able to navigate and, and, uh, and being kind of on that side, like behind the blue line, so to speak, and seeing how training actually happens and, and the level of performance that officers actually have is, has been really rewarding as well. Like just as a, as a civilian, as a researcher, um, you know, and an appreciation for the amount of stress and the physical psychological stress that the, the work and the training induce in police officers, you cannot separate that from motor learning and motor performance. So that's where that uh, that piece also comes in in the research article because these these things in science are studied in separation. Like motor learning, how does that happen? You do it in a laboratory and examine how that works. Stress, we look at that separately, measure it in a laboratory. How does that work? But that's not how policing works. That's not the reality of it. Everything is messy. Everything comes together. There's real life context and individual characteristics and personality and and things like that, which. For scientists, they don't like it's it's messy, but at the same time, it's real life. Like this is the the reality of, um, you know, up in an applied setting. So that's where the applied focus comes in. So scientifically, that just means like what is the practical application of this knowledge, uh, and that's um, and then that's what I do now as as a researcher. So working with police, uh, seeing what their training uh, uh, training curriculums and things look like and then trying to apply the science and the research that I know to whether that's effective or not, or how, how can we improve that um, with, with different evidence-based strategies and, uh, and methods, things like that. Okay, great. So, you know, I think you said something really important there about, uh, because in law enforcement, what often happens, and you, you're undoubtedly aware of this, especially in the academy setting, is we spend a lot of our time focused on motor skill training. So like basic motor skill training. And a lot of a lot of that time does not include the embedding of the performance of those skills within a situational task relevant type mm. of environment. And you mentioned this on page two of your paper, you say this, you say situational awareness and decision-making are essential motor skills for policing that integrate sensory, motor, and cognitive functions. So, you know, maybe unpack that a little bit for us. What's the role of situational awareness and decision-making in motor learning? Mm -hmm. So that's, uh, this again, is all, all of what I have learned has been from uh, Chief Inspector Hufta. So I, I hope we do have a follow-up session here with, with him to explain that further, uh, because that, that's really his passion, what he uh, is studying, again, for his own PhD right now, and uh, and the appreciation that I gained from that, from hearing, uh, you know, his, his side from an instructor perspective is that every encounter starts off with situational awareness you're assessing the situation but you know and in that being the finite definition of it you know maybe we can unpack that a little bit more but in terms of uh what that initial assessment informs is everything everything that happens subsequently every decision that an officer makes every a cue that they pick up on and how that informs their judgment and assessment and their behavior then like where they position themselves what 
uh, force option they might use or what they would say to to an individual. Uh, like it, it all starts from that first step. Um, so in terms of um, coordinating like the you know cognitive, motor, physical skills, like I said, so cognition is just a fancy word for thinking, different thinking processes, like reasoning, assessment, uh, inhibition. So not saying or doing something that that you would otherwise reflexively want to do. like that that involves a lot of brain power, a huge amount of uh, of thinking and complex cognition. So that, that's all that that means. So all of these different skills and processes come into play uh, and are directly informed by situational awareness. Like what you see and what you perceive in a scene is directly going to inform the level of threat that you perceive, your, your stress level in particular might be kicked up. You now see a, you know, a gun on the table that indicates something to you and is directly going to inform then the motor skills. So the motor plan of where should I move? Where should I go? How should I move? How quickly and how strong do I have to, uh, to be right now? Um, so that, those are other processes, again, that are planned in the brain. Uh, different parts of the brain are responsible for these processes. They speak to each other in milliseconds. And, and as an officer yourself, Chris, I'm sure you know, things happen in, in seconds. So um, understanding kind of the neuroscience behind these processes is essential for teaching them effectively and then performing them effectively in the real world, because you don't have time to stop and think and deliberate. And, hmm, what should I do? No, there isn't time. You have to know very quickly and very dynamically what to do and how to change that as the situation continues to unfold. Uh, because again, situational awareness isn't just step one and done you're constantly reassessing because even as you move through the space, things are changing. So constantly updating um, and, uh, and going through all of these mental processes over and over again. That's great, uh, Paul. And, and in the situational awareness, and I, I know you said we, we want to unpack that more, and I think it's good we do. We can do that now or later when you do your screen share. But one of the things that it, we will often hear law enforcement trainers use that phrase of situational awareness. They'll talk and they'll say it like, well, you need to be situationally aware. You just, you lost situational awareness, but I've not heard we have like, what does that mean to a trainer? Yeah. Right. And so that's, I think that's part of the problem because there's this notion that, you know, for great performance, you need to have this almost Jetta like awareness of everything that's going on. But I don't like that's not what we see, is it? Like when you look at great performers, elite level performers, whether that's in sporting <laughs> or in law enforcement, is that's not at all what they're doing. Their situational awareness is they are actually searching for those critical cues because they have the game intelligence to understand what's likely going to happen and when it does, where is it going to occur and what's it going to look like when it does. So I think that's really important that you do talk to us about that from a, a sort of a neuro psychological, neurological perspective, because um, we really need trainers to understand, like, what do we mean by situational awareness? And then For how sure. do we, how do we train it? Yeah. Um, yeah. So uh, do did you want to talk about that now, Paula, or do you want to wait? Till yeah, sure, sure. We can uh, we can dive into that too. So I'll uh, so as as I mentioned in that in the 2019 article, uh, there isn't a good definition of of situational awareness. So exactly like you said, like what does that actually mean? 
Well, to be situationally aware. Well, sure, that that's really great. But what what does it mean? Um, so uh, what some officers and in, in, in the research literature, anyways, the way that it's been typically defined uh, up up until recently, and the recent work that that uh, Yuha Mati and I have been doing that I will share. I'm really excited to share with you. Um, is uh, a model like in the you know mid '90s by Mika Ensley. She developed, uh, and this isn't for specific for policing either. I should mention. So that's that's really important to clarify that. Just in in general, situation awareness, situational awareness, kind of used interchangeably, was typically thought as this very linear process. So starting off with perception, you know, what do you see in your environment, or or also hear, smell, feel, all of those things, all of your sensory perception then understanding that information and, um, you know, comparing that to your, your memory, to your past experiences, to your past training of what, okay, what might this mean? You know, I see this guy with his hand behind his back. Uh, what might that mean? And then the, the final step is this kind of this cognitive process of prediction. So, you know, starting to create and running through this very, very quickly, again, in milliseconds, okay, what might that mean? Well, maybe he's got something, maybe now I need to adjust my behavior and, and move back or find cover or something, or start asking him to show his hands, so on. Um, so, so again, this, this is the established model that existed before doesn't speak to the complexity of police decision-making and situations and all, all kinds of other factors. And it also is quite linear. There's no reappraisal process kind of reflected here. Um, so with Yohamati, um, uh, we were really, well, he was really interested uh, specifically in, in finding out, uh, you know, what, what are the elements that specifically define situational awareness in these police-specific contexts? Uh, and uh, looking at experts, so starting off with the experts, as you mentioned, like they know kind of where to look and what cues to pick up on. Uh, so we really focused on studying them and specifically their eye movements. So using eye tracking, where do they look uh, in different scenes and also interviewing them? And, and what does that actually mean um, in terms of tactical decision making? So uh, so we published a study uh, earlier this year on the eye tracking component of, of this uh, study that, that he ran over in Finland. So sitting at a computer, he had expert and novice police officers look at 13 different pictures of, uh, of different staged images, staged encounters that vary from non-threatening to, to highly threatening. And, uh, and we measured their uh, eye movements, so where they're stopping and fixating and looking and where their eyes are, are tracking moving around for about 15 seconds. Uh, and then they were asked a question so, uh, afterwards. So what did you see and what, what would you have done next? And based on the transcripts from all of these interviews with novice and expert police officers, we were able to analyze and, and extract different themes and concrete themes of what situational awareness actually means. Uh, and so they repeated this again for, for about 13 uh, different images. And just to show you quickly kind of what we did for, for each of the pictures, we kind of uh, looked at different target regions of interest. So that's ROI. So, you know, marked boundary regions around specific target areas in each picture uh, to see how long and, and whether their eyes landed within these areas versus the, like the surrounding environment. And we're also specifically interested in some of these sub regions of interest. So heads, faces, hands, uh, things like that, as those might be really uh, important visual cues. Uh, so this is just a neat, 
picture of, of kind of what the eye tracking data looks like. We see actual blobs and these, these represent spots of where officers' eyes actually looked. So really using, uh, you know, cutting edge neuroscientific evidence uh, as, as these are implicit eye movements, like officers are not really consciously deliberately trying to look anywhere. We were really looking, um, and we also looked at the first five seconds, so very early fixation patterns, like where, where are the eyes darting around and looking and stopping on and, and what information are they deriving? Um, so a couple of the, the key findings that we found uh, was that the expert officers who all had um, at least 15 years of, of experience, operational experience uh, and, and tactical units, canine, special units, uh, as well as some police instructors, uh, some use of force and tactics instructors as well, they all tended to look at the hands earlier in their search patterns compared to the face. Uh, and that's really important as well uh, for rookies to, to understand that the hands are what can reach for things and, and might cause harm and do some damage. So already just that finding uh, can really inform situational awareness training, tactical use of force training to teach rookies to look to the hands earlier. Um, everyone tended to look at the face first, which, you know, that provides important social cues and social information, emotional uh, information, um, possibly on the person's like mental health status as well. If someone kind of, you know, looks like to be in a state of delirium, there's a lot of information that comes from the face. So that's great that everyone has that primitive kind of response. Uh, but what the experts, again, tend to do is focus on the hands and also focus more on the target compared to the environment. And, and that's what we found with the, the rookies, with the, the novices. So these are all um, trainees at the Police University College of Finland. Uh, so before any practical field experience, you know, they, they, this is, uh, they participated in the study and they tended to scan, look around in, in the room a lot more than focusing on the person and deriving important information and cues about them. Um, but that following their tactical training, we, we kind of split our novice group into two and found that after their, their tactical use of force training, the novices did start to look to the hands earlier. So, you know, there, there's evidence to suggest that that practical training, directive training already starts to shape these kind of automatic visual motor behaviors. So visual motor being like, where do your eyes look? Where do the muscles and uh, in your eyes direct them to, to look? Um, so that's uh, so that's really neat uh, research that wasn't in the 2019 paper because it didn't exist. So we were able to kind of come up with this um, and then to, to break down the uh, interview data. Uh, these were the seven different themes that that we were able to identify from the interview. So what does situational awareness actually mean? So in based on what officers said to what they saw and what they would do next, a lot of them identified different tactical options and opportunities like, okay, the guy's in the doorway, I would position myself here or there. So, uh, and, and again, most of these responses came from experts. Novices didn't really have much to say, uh, understandably, uh, but experts had a really great uh, idea for how, what they saw translated into where they should be, how they should position themselves. And really critically, what we saw, especially from the, uh, from the instructors in our expert group, was this constant sense of self-awareness. So an ongoing assessment of how their own activities, how their own positioning and, and tactical maneuvers uh, would, would inform their situational awareness. And that's really key. And what I touched on before in this constant reappraisal 
in the sense that as you move through the scene, the expert officers are really keen in understanding, okay, now where I've positioned myself or the verbal command that I've just given, how is that going to impact the situation as it continues to unfold? So this was a really key and novel theme that we found. Uh, in addition to some of the more practical, you know, fundamental things like understanding distance and time laws. So how far are you relative to a person? Um, the, in terms of time laws, meaning how long or how fast can I get to that person or can they get to me? And that's going to adjust your tactical options and opportunities. So again, these themes are really heavily uh, interrelated as well and, and tend to inform each other. Uh, so some of the more obvious things being, you know, the presence of dangerous objects, which novices were able to spot, okay, there's a gun on the table, but they weren't able to connect that to distance and time, how much time it might give them to arrive at that, or how might that inform their tactical options and opportunities, right? That's where the expert level comes in. And, and like you said, kind of putting the pieces together and identifying uh, even the potential for dangerous objects. Well, there might be something in that other room or in the kitchen, and I would go look there. So, um, uh, and profiling the suspect, meaning, you know, not just sizing them up and, oh, they look aggressive or they look angry. Um, but what the experts were able to do is look at, uh, you know, another theme, like the surrounding environment and conditions, say, okay, this place looks pretty neat and tidy, so, you know, that doesn't seem to imply that this person might be dangerous or chaotic or in a, in a bad mind state. Uh, so maybe there isn't anything too, too dangerous going on uh, or vice versa. You know, this place is a total mess and I see things all over the place. So this person might, you know, be in some sort of a crisis or looks like there's something bad going on here. Um, so again, demonstrating kind of the interrelatability of, uh, of the different themes. And lastly, understanding partners and roles, uh, which which is also really critical. And we see this in uh, in you know incident command response and knowing you know who's the primary officer, who's secondary, who's got the support role, and what does that entail for you? So okay, if someone else is taking the lead, then what are my tactical options and opportunities? Should I switch to a less lethal force and kind of stand back or provide cover or do other things? Um, so all of these are very practical and concrete um, uh, uh, aspects and elements that together comprise situational awareness and uh, and what we're really proud of and what we're really hoping for for this study when hopefully it comes out soon is to be able to provide uh, police trainers with concrete uh, manageable steps and different chunks that can then be taught as part of a, a toolkit, uh, part of your, your skill set in developing a better sense of, of, of broader situational awareness and defining it in a more understandable way that, that has really meaningful components that can also be specifically focused on in training and different training exercises as well. Okay, that, that's excellent. Thank you for that overview. Um, so I have a couple of uh, questions. First of all, I don't know that many of the, the viewers will be familiar with eye tracking technology. So can you just tell us like the eye trackers, what do they do? What part of vision do they tell you is being used? Yeah. And what, what do they inform you as to what the, the performer is actually attending to? For sure. Uh, so eye trackers are becoming a lot more sophisticated in the sense that they're they're not as invasive you know before you would have to sit in front of a camera that you know literally tracks the black pupil part of your eye and you couldn't move at all 
but I believe the system that they they used for this study over in Finland was just a set of glasses that, that you put on and it's got two little tiny cameras on it that again it it, uh, it just locks onto your uh, your pupil and tracks it according to whatever it is that you're looking at. Um, so whether it's um, you know participating in a live scene or or something more controllable like like the paradigm that we use, just looking at static images, static pictures, and the uh, the software system of of the eye tracker literally will track the order of your fixation. Where do you look next? How long do you stop and look at something? Oops, oops sorry. Um, and uh, and if you, you know, consider our eye movements and where they kind of jerk around and look around every second, um, they reveal a lot about kind of your unconscious mind and where you're looking, because what you see and what, what we actually found in, in the study, especially with the novices, what you see, meaning where your eye actually lands, doesn't actually translate to what you consciously see or perceive. So in some of these pictures, like, uh, you know, with the, the, the guy in the kitchen, there is a gun here on the table. Uh, but in some of the cases in the interview that followed, the participants didn't say anything about a gun. They didn't even mention it. And this wasn't even a stressful task. Like you would expect to see kind of those lapses in memory when, you know, things are really, really stressful. And, you know, the officer may or may not have encoded or remembered something happening. But in a non-stressful passive viewing task, it was so amazing for us to be like, well, there's something really obvious and vi visually salient here. We know objectively that your eye landed on that thing. So how can you not remember it? Why didn't you remember it or think that it might've been an important piece of, of information? So, uh, so that's, uh, again, just really telling and revealing to us about like what's happening in the brain. How do we piece these uh, pieces of information together and that eye tracking is, is a really useful tool again in being able to capture some of these unconscious automatic things because the, the way that your your eyes are wired to look is within like micro milliseconds like there are things called micro saccades that your eyes move so quickly but your brain fills in the information so that if you look from side to side you don't you don't get nauseous and feel like your whole world is moving like our visual systems. Uh, that's the strongest sense we have. That's the, my specialty in visual neuroscience too. So I could geek out on the technicalities of, of visual perception for, for days. Uh, but it, it's really incredible what our visual system provides, but how there can also be such a disconnect with what you consciously perceive, even though if your eyes are looking at it and you're still not getting it or not piecing it together or consciously remembering it, that's very possible. And, and it's also very natural too. So uh, I also don't want to make it seem like all oh, cops are not good at doing this. Like human beings are, are generally not good at doing this. And, um, and the stress responses that we were kind of alluding to at, at the very beginning, again, like these are fundamental universal human responses uh, that a lot of times cops are, you know, they seem to be punished or looked down upon because they can't operate within these literally impossible conditions sometimes or you know why their brain or eyes don't do this certain thing under stress well it's because our human system has has limitations and doesn't operate that way under stress so so using tools like this and my past research that you know use brain imaging techniques to really look inside uh you know the brain to see what's happening 
a lot that hasn't yet been done in police. I'm, I'm hoping that my future research can really get more into that uh, neural imaging, but this is a really great start. And there are a lot of um, growing number of studies that do use eye tracking because again, it's becoming simplified. A pair of glasses that you can just pop on and calibrate and, and it will tell you uh, a lot about where an officer's eyes are moving and then using other, other types of uh, methods like questionnaires and interviews to put those pieces together and see, okay, what you see, does that translate to actually what you're consciously perceiving and informing situational awareness, decision-making and everything that comes after that. Okay. So uh, one of the, the things with that, so, you know, you mentioned that sometimes officers can just because their eye scans land on salient cues in the environment, but there's no, uh, uh, sort of processing, cognitive processing about what that actually means. Did you see a difference between the sort of the novices and the experts in your eye tracking study? Like, did the experts, were they faster to pick up on those relevant cues? And did they, did they understand the significance of them quicker than the novices? Or what did you see there? Yeah, definitely. So that that's that's why we were interested in the order of the fixation. Like, what do you look at first? What do you look at second, third, fourth, fifth? And really, just those first five to six fixations is is what we were uh, measuring specifically. Um, and that's that's what we see here. And it's kind of tough to see, but there are little numbers within each of these circles. So the the system literally gave us that information. Um, and uh, the different colors are just different participants. And the size of the circle represents the, the time of fixation. So the longer they spent looking at a certain spot here, the bigger that circle grew. So just to give you some context on what this colorful blob picture actually means. Um, so once again, the experts we found within the first one, two, three, four, five fixations, they're moving, okay, moving around the space, but going back to the target, looking at their hands, focusing more on that person. Uh, and then combined with the, the qualitative uh, interviews after providing a much more multidimensional response. Like even in one sentence, they could touch on multiple of these themes. Like, okay, so, you know, I saw a gun on the table uh, that was a bit too far for me to get to. So, uh, you know, and the guy didn't seem to be too threatening. So instead I did this. And uh, if that didn't work, I would then do, you know, something else. So really bouncing around and providing a rich set of information that they had no idea what the purpose of the study was and that we were looking for different components of situational awareness. So just through their expertise and, and then describing what they would naturally do and going through that thought process, we were able to analyze that and break that down to identify these specific uh, components and, and really break them down into these concrete things to derive that tacit knowledge. So tacit meaning like it's just implicit. It's inherent. You can't even really describe it. You can't even articulate it and put it into words. And that's what we see a lot with uh, with expertise and um, and some of the research like by Gary Klein and some other people that you're familiar with their, their work as well. Our brains are just so good at detecting patterns and knowing what to do and being able to figure out what to do, but explaining that and actually putting that into words it can sometimes be really tough. So like you said, as police instructors can sometimes say, okay, you just have to be situationally aware. Like, what does it mean? What does that actually mean? Like pulling those words out 
uh, can be really challenging. And, and what we found also from the interviews that the experts that were police instructors were particularly good at articulating and explaining what they would do next and, uh, you know, touching on each of these different themes and especially this ongoing assessment, like the self-awareness of, well, if I do this, it might lead the suspect to do this. So then I would also have this backup plan. And that shows again, like the, the highest level of sophistication and of, of thinking of really predicting and thinking what might happen next and how already in your mind, you've already programmed a contingency plan. Uh, so like you just said, that's what the highest level athletes do. Um, and situational awareness is, is something that's really fundamental also in, in other domains like athletics, military, aviation as well, like needing to not only be aware of, of the environment around you, but how you influence that environment and your behavior now changes it and needs to constantly be updated. Well, you know what, this is amazing. And what I think is so going to be so exciting for, I can't wait till this paper is published. Um, Me too. Because um, what I'm seeing here and what you're talking about is being able to codify the performance elements that high performers, that the elite officers do, but we can now bring those into the academy at the very early stages of training and start building drills and scenarios to integrate the critical aspects of situational awareness. And, and it could be really powerful to help improve our officers' training. But that's exactly the intended goal of, of this study and, and of all of the research. And I'm really proud to say that uh, that our partners there at the, the Police University College of Finland, they're able to directly, they're starting to do that already. And they were able to do that with, with other, uh, other training paradigms that we've developed, you know, in collaboration with academics, scientists, clinicians, and police practitioners so that everyone is bringing something to the table. You know, the, the police instructors and their operational experience, they know what's happening uh, and in the situation, what the essential elements are. So by making that explicit now and investigating it using, you know, neuroscientific tools and, uh, you know, thematic analyses of interview data, like we're really extracting this expert information because obviously that, that's what we want to build. We want to build expertise want to do it faster you want to do it safer more effectively uh, so exactly like you said we're hoping that the article once published you know we've provided really clear definitions and descriptions and examples of what each of these themes mean um, suggestions for different training exercises how can you bring each of these elements in or um, you know when you're you're designing whether it's a, a scenario like a real live scenario or even other more simple um, training tasks you know, how can you touch on each of these elements to, you know, kind of build that fundamental knowledge and then step up the complexity, step up the um, the dynamic nature of, of the, the scenario that's going to involve now combining these things and really building that, that next level expertise. And I, I think what you just said there, uh, doctor, is really critical for trainers because we need, and I, I guess you know, maybe is this where part of the art of training comes in? Because as we look at, you know, that scaffolding approach of of, of increasing the complexity and the, the desirable difficulties of challenges, um, we don't want to overwhelm our performer because, well, maybe you can talk to us, like, what's the relationship then between, like, pressure 
and stress. So as an officer, if I'm going through a scenario and I need to maintain great situational awareness, and that is defined by all those categories that mm -hmm. you just mentioned, then what's the relationship between my physiology and my anxiety and stress level on situational awareness? Has that, has that been studied and is it well understood? That's great. So I think I jumped the gun a little bit. So we've, we've published uh, this in terms of different training method approaches. So as, as we were just talking about, as your complexity increases uh, and, and sort of your, your level of training also, you know, you start off as, as uh, you know, the green, green rookie and all the way to the experienced guys that, that also need to update their knowledge and learn new skills. And, um, you know, as policies and things change or as information and knowledge changes, uh, we, we find better ways of doing things and uh, better ways of defining things like situational awareness. So, um, so all of that can be met with different types of, of training methods. So this is from a book chapter uh, that we published. And, uh, and again, if anyone is interested in actually getting this information, if you're having a hard time getting to the actual articles themselves and things like that, I can give you my email address to, to pop up and, um, uh, you know, officers can definitely reach out to me. I'm happy to, to answer questions or, or provide some of these resources. Um, but what we've found that, you know, starting off with observational learning. So this is the no stress situation. You're learning the basics. Um, this is good for refresher training and experts. Like you don't necessarily need to go through the full live stressful scenario based training. That's the most dynamic, most complex um, but everything in between, there are different different um, strategies that we can use that, again, also leverage uh, your training resources. Uh, so maybe the biggest lesson that I've learned as, as an academic and civilian is how finite that training time is. You know, the officer's first priority is, is their calls for service. You're, you're on call. Yes, there are regular training intervals that happen. How frequently and what's trained during that time is a whole other conversation and how well that's done. Uh, but from a, a teaching perspective, we can also appreciate that, okay, not every teaching condition is ideal with unlimited time and resources to, to do it the perfect way. Uh, so what are some of the different techniques that can result in really effective, short, quick training um, so different things like mental imagery or visualization. So if you don't have time to run through an entire scenario, um, just getting the officers to go through kind of like the, the thought experiment, the mental simulation, well, what would you do? Uh, that activates certain parts of the brain that are also involved in the physical performance. So what we see a lot in, uh, in athletes, especially if they're injured or if they're in downtime, they use mental imagery to, to, you know, imagine themselves going through, uh, you know, going through the course or, you know, throwing that free throw or doing whatever it is. And, and you're literally rewiring those brain networks almost in the same way as if you were physically practicing it, obviously without the, the physical uh, reinforcement itself. So imagery and visualization is a really important tool that, that we've used. Um, and this is also in the 2019 paper, but just to expand on it a bit more, this component skills training. So what that means sort of, uh, I, I think officers of uh, trainers have referred to it as kind of box drills or these really short drills where you're practicing kind of one finite skill. So these new situational awareness themes that we've just identified, 
those can be used to very easily come up with these sort of component training skills. Like, okay, if uh, you know, you're in this scene and, and you want the officer or the trainee specifically to focus on like distance and time and their tactical options and opportunities. Well, those are the specific skills and outcomes that you're going to want to look for in this little mini task and try to get the trainee to arrive at, you know, considering those facets, considering those aspects, or um, often we see that when, when training uh, lethal force decision-making, like just shoot or no shoot. We're not interested in the physical maneuver of it, but here's a quick situation. What do you do? So that's what we mean by this kind of component skills training, like these little um, kind of learning of individual steps that then can then be built into more complex uh, simulations or scenarios and virtual and then live contexts that now put these things together. Uh, and you wouldn't start a rookie off in this highly complex situation. You need to build these foundational blocks using these different methods before you arrive at that. Um, but I want to I answer your actual question now. So pairing that with, um, with the actual stress response. So from the 2019 paper, uh, we had to, again, bridge the basic science stuff that has looked at rats and monkeys and humans and understanding what happens in your brain, what happens in your body with stress as, as stress or pressure, as you said, increases uh, and combining that with the data that we see in police research on what performance looks like under high stress. And we know that more mistakes are made. We know that there's more uh, freezing or situational awareness is impaired, but how and what is the mechanism? How, how does that actually happen? That's still relatively unknown. Uh, even from 2019, from when this paper came out, there, there's still uh, a lot of investigation that needs to be done. So pairing that with the chart that I, I just showed you, uh, we know that low stress or no stress, that's effective for learning declarative skills. So things like laws and procedures and facts and things that you need to recall, you don't need to be stressed out to learn those things. And in fact, that might actually interfere with your ability to learn those things. Uh, but that with moderate levels of stress, um, that uh, like as you see in uh, scenario-based training, it's really important that it simulates real world pressure, real world stress, because you don't want to experience that for the first time when you're actually in the field. You know, you want to train officers to physically feel that arousal, that pressure and that stress so that they're not only comfortable with it, but know how to effectively manage that and still be able to perform effectively. So stress does play a really critical role uh, in, in the training process. And it also helps to encode information or really build it into your muscle memory so that it isn't blocked and those skills aren't blocked then when you're in this high stress, when you're kind of in the, the red line and, and, uh, and stress is extremely high, it's having effects on your brain and on your body. Uh, and we see this kind of with this inoculation training or like really militaristic style training where you know, I think it, I've heard it referred to as like ninjas dropping from the ceiling, like you walk into a room and you're just ambushed. So that's a no win situation as well. Like that's not a really effective uh, training situation because you're not training any skill. There's nothing you could do in that situation. So it's kind of a wasted opportunity. It's wasted time and could potentially result in a training scar. And I know I think that's something we really want to talk about as well. But um, that's now introducing stress in a way that's not adaptive. It's not helping anyone learn. It could be potentially damaging. And we know that at these levels of extreme stress, that police performance is impaired 
especially without adequate training. So especially without training in these st stressful situations, you're sort of setting the officers up for, for failure or potentially even a trauma, which you don't ever, ever want to do. So, um, so again, building up that expertise, starting with, you know, no stress, building the fundamentals, gradually increasing complexity of your training tasks to meet these increasing levels of stress to eventually get officers uh, prepared to perform sort of at these high levels, but still maintain that, that effectiveness. Okay. So a um, whole bunch of questions coming out of this, because yeah. I think really important. Um, the first one is, so I heard you use the word pressure and stress. And now were you using those synonymously or do they mean two different things in the research, stress and pressure? So, so that's a good question. There's so many terms that are used kind of synonymously, like scenario and simulation or, you know, um, stress, pressure, uh, unease, threat. Like these are all kind of very, very much used interchangeably. But um, the common thing about all of those things, stress, pressure, threat, uh, anxiety, if you even want to use that term, is that they all have a similar physiological effect. So, uh, you know, driving up your, your heart rate, inducing tunnel vision, inducing these kind of perceptual distortions. Uh, and these can either be from like real external stressors, like, you know, seeing a gun on the table or being in a dark environment. Within milliseconds, your, your brain and your body is triggering responses that, that are meant to be adaptive, like, you know, fight or flight. It's meant to, to help you survive or mobilize or uh, or avoid, run away, uh, as we're all programmed to do. And cops are programmed to run into the, the threat, which is an incredible thing, thinking from you know the scientific perspective. You're going counter to evolution and running directly towards the threat. So what does that do then to your, your physiological system? Um, so what the term that we prefer to use as well in, in our research group anyways is, is unease, because that tends to encompass sort of everything. So the pressure of the situation, uh, which might infer uh, sort of the demands of the situation, like as your demands increase and as uncertainty increases or um, the potential for danger or violence, that all increases threat, it increases pressure, and it increases this physiological sense of unease. So you feel this, like, uh, I, th I think that's, that's why we also like to, to use the term, because it's something that we're all sort of connected to, and you can't really articulate it, you know, you get a funny feeling in your stomach, you get tightness in your, your muscles, your mouth goes dry. Um, and again, this unease can be really adaptive at, at low levels, like me being, you know, nervous to give an interview and, and talk about policing in front of policing experts. But it's good because it brings the blood flow to my brain. It helps me, you know, connect information and be vigilant and pay attention and, and actually enhances performance. But there's a tipping point somewhere then when, uh, you know, especially if there are underlying, uh, you know, mental health disorders, which we see elevated rates of in police officers like anxiety or depression or post-traumatic stress disorder, and especially without training and knowing how to manage these physiological effects it can start to be kind of like a runaway train and like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. Like you don't know what's happening. And that will tip you over the edge from that effective performance to now making mistakes or missing cues in the environment or forgetting what's happening or forgetting your training. Like if it isn't really deeply encoded into your muscle memory, that pressure, that unease and threat, it's completely going to interfere with your ability to 
access that motor information and it, it might result in you doing something reflexive as opposed to what your training tells you you should do. And, and we see that in experts as well. And, and uh, Chief Inspector Huhta, he's observed that again in the high level elite guys that have had you know decades of, of training and they're still making mistakes and making kind of rookie mistakes. So that's what's kind of led to uh, sort of his research questions and something that we've tried to explore a lot in our investigations and understanding the stress continuum, because we know fundamentally this, this is a very um, common model of performance and stress, this inverted U that, you know, with some moderate stress, performance increases, but then it starts to drop down. But what specific point or heart rate it starts to decrease, we don't know. And, and it's also highly individual. Uh, an individual between you and me, Chris, an individual on you on a day where you're more tired, or you didn't get a great night's sleep, or, you know, I, I had an argument with my husband or something, and now I'm particularly stressed. So my tipping point is, is now changed, or your immune system's compromised, you're getting over the flu, something like that. So this, this relationship between stress and performance is so nuanced. Uh, there isn't any hard and fast rules, but we do know from these general principles and relationships uh, how we could tailor training uh, to be better suited to to meet these meet these demands. You earlier mentioned about use the phrase muscle memory, and I think most trainers would know exactly what you mean by that. You're we're, we're talking about the automaticity or the autom automation of motor skills, right? And now yeah, yeah. when when trainers, when officers are taken to a level of that automaticity with their motor skills, are those skills found to be more resilient under higher stress or what's the relationship between automaticity and performance under pressure? Yeah, the, that's definitely the case. So as, as we learn, uh, I don't think I have a slide or a picture for that, um, but uh, definitely as, as you as you learn something, it becomes more automatic. And that's sort of a hallmark of, of expertise as well, is that not only do you become more accurate and quicker and more fluid in your in your performance, but you're also able to then dynamically apply that skill in different contexts. So I, I don't know, I like to use, uh, you know, sports examples, like if, you know, someone uh, becomes perfect at, at throwing a free throw, like from from the foul line, okay, you can do this perfectly now. Well, then your next stage of, of training would now be to be able to throw to the basket from different positions. Once you've accomplished that, now you want to have an opponent in front of you, maybe two or three. So uh, again, increasing the complexity, increasing the level of stress and demands that need to be met, uh, that, that's how you train and build that expertise. Um, so it, it's not only that, that the movements have to become automatic, but they need to be able to be applied in a variety of situations. So in thinking of, you know, situational awareness, for instance, uh, you know, starting off in the classroom, looking at pictures and, you know, training the, the, the rookies, okay, what are the specific components and really understanding that you have to have that implicit understanding before you can start to put the pieces together. So the word like implicit, explicit is something that we use a lot of, a lot of times. So when you, um, sort of um, what, what we want to do, and especially with these motor skills and situational awareness, we want to embed that to become so implicit, it's so ingrained, it's stored so deep in your brain that it is part of that muscle memory. It's something that 
it, it's automatic now. Whatever situation you are in, you're able to call up these skills in a way that that's just fast, fluid, effective. And the only way that's going to happen is if that information and the skills and the procedures are really uh, embedded and ingrained in your brain, in the memory parts of your brain to become explicit, uh, implicit. But in the initial stages of learning, you're first introduced to a concept, you kind of have to think about it. You really have to consciously, effortfully think and piece them together. So that's an explicit process. Like we have to really try. And it's it's still kind of, a, and literally it's in the outer levels of your brain, the thinking parts that use a lot of energy and power to really uh, to try to think about things in a more uh, conscious, deliberate way. But that takes time. There's also no time in high pressure situations to be able to do that and to run through, well, what should I do now? And if that doesn't work, what else should I do? No, you have to rely on that implicit information uh, to be able to, to act fast and act, act effectively. So that's also why we're so committed. And, and as you are as well, I'm really happy to, to hear that we're committed to these pedagogical practices, these training practices that are going to build that implicit expert automatic level of, of knowledge and understanding. Uh, because then when the stress gets high, that's all the information that is available to you. Your, your frontal cortex, the parts of your brain that are involved in all of that thinking they're literally not accessible. They are not, sh they're shut down during fight or flight. You're not thinking about anything, but where, where do I go? Where do I hide? How do I uh, stop the threat that's immediately in front of me? That's all you can think about. Uh, and, uh, and you're not even thinking like you're, you're just sort of um, reacting. And the, the terms that we really want to move away from is we don't want officers to react based on, you know, just an instinct, but we want them to be able to act effectively based on all of this implicit knowledge, based on your training and based on your skills and best practices so that you're not, you know, potentially doing something either that's wrong or making a mistake uh, or possibly even these, uh, you know, near misses where the end result might be good but you did so using strategies that could have put yourself or your partner or someone else in danger along the way. Uh, so it's really important to um, in training, not only to consider what the end was and end outcome. Okay. Yep. You, you did it. You made the right shoot decision, but you messed up in many parts along the way, or they had some sort of unconscious thought process that the trainer doesn't then stop and say, okay, well, why did you do this? And why did you do that? And what was that based on? It might actually reveal, well, this person is now encoding a really improper strategy or really uh, like potentially dangerous strategy to arrive at the proper end result. That's definitely not what we want either, because then in a different situation, they might think, well, what I did steps A, B, and C took me to the right outcome, but they're now putting themselves in a position where they, they could get hurt or, or make a mistake or um, get a physical or psychological injury from, from a, a strategy that wasn't the best. And uh, is one of the keys to avoiding that, and you mentioned this before, so I just want to make sure that I'm clear on it, is because you're right, that's what we don't want. Like, con I always say context is king. The context mm -hmm. of every situation, so that's back to situational awareness. Did you correctly assess the context that you're in? Because that's going to drive all the performance after that. So we don't want just that linear stimulus response type of behavior so is, is more variability, the more that we can introduce in our drills and our training, 
the variability of context that the performer has to learn in, is that going to help reduce those training scars? Absolutely. So not just um, um, the the method itself, like having the, the scenarios that, again, we talked about, like they take a lot of time. And if you want to run officers through them individually, that will take, you know, hundreds of hours if, you, if you've got a big service to, to get everyone through these dynamic scenarios. So capitalizing on some of those other approaches, like box drills or observational tasks, showing in a group setting so that officers also learn from each other and, and hey, okay, yeah, he, he said this, that might actually be a good thing to do. That all helps to form these memories and, and get this information encoded because you might then be on, a, on a, a call and remember, oh, I remember this guy in that training said that he actually checked behind that door before going in or there was someone there that he didn't think. And it just gives you that one piece of information that could literally make the difference between you you know, like life or death. Like there, no other occupation has like life or death level situation, decision-making implications of something going wrong, or at least like, you know, getting very, very seriously physically injured. So I can appreciate that the stakes are high. This isn't just like, oh, you know, do I, do I fill this report in or not? Like the, the, the research and the training approaches that we focus on are for these life or death decision-making and the level of stress that you feel is life or death stress. It's not just you know, pressure or anxiety or, or whatever, like it's, this is really uh, the highest level that you need to be expected to perform under. Um, so, so that's not to say that you need to introduce that level of stress in, in a training context, but by building a, a repertoire, so building a, a set of experiences in the officer's mind that they've either run through themselves in scenarios that are stressful, obviously try to, you know, have, have that as much as possible because it's immersive. There's physical cues, distance cues and things that you need to be able to, to calculate. Uh, but then also using other approaches to then supplement that, to just build kind of a um, sort of a catalog. Like when we say repertoire, really you're just building a catalog of experiences and information in the officer's brain that they can then use to you know, identify patterns and identify cues in other situations in the future that just gives you more to, to build off of and know what to do or remember hearing a story of, of you know, what, what another officer did because that, that's another really important approach in policing especially and not just in, in learning but also in a therapeutic setting, this idea of narrating and creating a narrative and storytelling and uh, you know, hearing, you know, some of these can be sometimes very morbid and sad stories, but it's really important to use those also as learning opportunities to say, well, you know, this is what happened, but this is what could have been done. Well, that's now information for another officer that they can take with them and can be just as effective and memorable and something that sticks implicitly somewhere in the con unconscious back part of your brain that when you're in a similar situation, it's like, oh, okay, I'll, I'll remember that. I can kind of uh, remember what happened there and, and, and you can learn from that as well. The ability to rapidly assess a situation. So your ability, you know, to, for your visual motor behavior, your perception, your assessment, your understanding of what, what the situation is, 
Have you seen, because one of the things I, I, I've often seen like high performing teams use, not just in, in law enforcement, but even in other domains is like the, what they call rapid decision-making drills. Mm -hmm. and, and we sometimes refer to them as hood drills in mm -hmm. law enforcement. And that just simply means that all of a sudden you're just quickly presented with a short snapshot of a scene and then it's occluded and you have to, what did you see? What are you doing? What's critical? Has there been research on that type of training as it relates to what you're talking about? I wish there was, and maybe that could be something for the future for, for me to explore. But that, that's what I was referring to as the box drills. Or that, that's what I've, I've uh, heard them called or experienced them in that, in that sense. Uh, but again, the really important uh, learning opportunities to train something very specific. So, um, so depending on whatever your learning objective is as a trainer, do you want to train these visual motor behaviors? You're trying to train the officers where to look. Are you trying to either train or assess? So this is another important differentiation. Like, are you training or evaluating? Because those are two different goals that um, that with the evaluation piece introduces a level of, of stress or pressure because the officer knows, well, I'm being evaluated. I know my performance. And if I screw up right now, it has implications. I might be, you know, I might not qualify for, for duty. I might be stuck to a desk or I might just look like a, an idiot in front of my instructor. So that adds pressure, that adds stress that we know influences performance. So a lot of these combined like training and evaluation contexts, again, in a perfect world, you would have separate training days and separate evaluation days. But we know that that's not the case, uh, but that, that's something that we try to advocate for, at least recommend in, in our all of our research showing like, hey, we know that that's going to introduce stress that might interfere with definitely with performance and definitely with learning. So they, they shouldn't really be combined. So um, so just kind of going back to your question, though, these sort of hood drills for for the purpose, for their intended purpose, they're really effective. But if you were to try to, um, you know, assess or, you know, for for an annual requalification, um, you know, you wanted to assess an officer's verbal de-escalation skills and, you know, putting them in this sort of a hood drill where it's, you know, just a video screen or something like that. And they have only a second to respond. Well, they're not interacting with a live person. They're not really getting realistic physical social cues from a person. Uh, so it, it doesn't actually match your, your training or evaluation objective. So something else that, again, we've spoken to in other, other works and other research is, is the importance of really matching what is your objective as an instructor and as a trainer? What are the competencies and skills that you're trying to elicit or derive or observe? Even if they're unconscious processes like the, like situational awareness, you can't really see that. You see the end result, you see the end behavior, but how do you actually elicit these unconscious processes and through your feedback, through your debriefing with the officer, you wanna get an understanding of, okay, why did you do what you did? Um, there are different methods that would suit that, you know, better or worse. So, so that in terms of the the pedagogy um, and your your actual educational approach and the methods that you're using, it's really important to consider that. And it's it's not common that police trainers have pedagogical training or experience, and and even in academia, like professors don't often have 
training on how to be good instructors and teachers. I've had so many crummy professors that don't know how to communicate, don't know how to articulate, but they're experts in their fields. They know what to do and how to do it. Uh, so even, you know, we see in police instructors a lot, like operationally, they're the top of the top. They're very competent, but in making that explicit and verbalizing and languaging that implicit knowledge, something that they just know. I don't even know how I know this, but I just know it, that this is the way that it's supposed to be done. Uh, but that's not really effective from an instructor perspective. So that's why I'm really glad to be part of this series. And, and it's amazing that you're putting this together. I think it's an incredible uh, uh, you know, asset and, and tool for instructors so that they can get to that next level and, and use approaches and tasks that um, are, are specifically uh, suited to different learning objectives or different evaluation objectives. And consideration of that alone is, is really, really important. Okay. Um, do you mind putting up that picture of the, the, the stress curve that you had there again? I have one, one more question. Sure. I really appreciate your time and, and uh, I know we're coming up on an hour. But I just have one more question. I think this will be really important for officers. So if you could share that. Okay. Yeah. So um, when I look at this, so correct me if I've misunderstood what you've said. So that middle area of that curve, like I see that as the sweet spot mm -hmm. for motor learning. So if I can keep my performer in a level of moderate stress arousal, that their, their learning, their memory, the retention, the transfer of those skills is gonna be optimal. But I've gotta be careful because if I push them off the other side into that more extreme stress side, you said learning is impaired. We can actually end up with stress injuries, training scars, all kinds yep. of things which are really bad. So as a trainer, Paula, how do I, when I'm, when I'm doing drills and scenarios with my students, what what would be indicators that they're in the optimal zone? Because I'm not measuring cortisol and heart rate variability yeah. and antithrombin and all that. So what would the average trainer look for visually to know that they've still got their students in that moderate optimal zone? That's a great question. And, and I'm not sure that I have the training experience to give you that answer. I know Chief Inspector Hufta would know exactly what to do and exactly what to look for. Um, so based on what I've learned from him, um, you know, maybe some of the, the visual cues might be like, just notice how the student is breathing. Like, are, are they breathing? Are they kind of short of breath? Like what, you know, what's their expression like? Are they kind of blank? Are they there? Are they really looking at you or just kind of looking through you and running through their own mind, especially if they've made a mistake? That That's a really clear time when you have to try to bring them down first. So um, even just through different breathing techniques. So we, we've uh, trained something called the, the one breath reset. So it's literally just inhaling, kind of pausing for a second and then just breathing out through pursed lips. So that literally physically drives your, your heart rate down. Uh, so bringing you kind of slingshotting you back, even just for that second back into a more moderate optimal level of stress. Uh, it's something that we also train officers to do when they're in a scenario or when they're out in the field uh, to self-regulate themselves. Like if you feel, you know, you physically feel what it's like to start getting into that red line and 
things start kind of getting hectic and crazy, you do this reset breath to drive your, your fight or flight uh, reaction down, drive down your, your sympathetic arousal, your heart rate, all of that, just to give you that, uh, that clearer mind, access your, uh, your, your best um, training practices, get a little bit of situational awareness in the moment. Uh, and we know that it works. We know we've tested this, this training paradigm out and we see reduced lethal force errors we see improved physical recovery from stress. So in the time that it takes you then to recover from this extreme amount of stress, um, you know, the officers can be elevated for the whole rest of the day and just through training, not even, you know, following calls. And with that repeated exposure, that has an incredible wear and tear on, on your physical and mental health. Uh, so some of those strategies, like j literally just, just breathing is going to help bring that officer back to that moderate optimal stress. And that's when you can do your debrief. That's when you can give your feedback because otherwise they're not even hearing you. They're not listening to you. Your debrief is not being mentally encoded at all. They're just kind of focusing on maybe what went wrong or, or just the arousal of the situation itself is, is kind of stressful. So bringing your, your student or your, your officer back to a level where they're receptive to the learning, where they're open to it is, uh, is really, really uh, critical to do that. Okay. That's excellent. And I guess we should just reinforce that at the other end of the curve, having a completely flat emotional, like having no stress arousal, that is also not leading to good learning, is it? So if we're, and I think, you know, does, does student motivation tie into this? Because I'll often read the importance of student motivation and the relationship to learning. And for me, I think of my training, whether that's been firearms training or combatives, martial arts is, I remember those moments when I had like that physiological arousal where I felt I was in that zone for learning. Yeah. But I've also had those times where I have just been completely disengaged and unmotivated and uh, the learning has been absolutely horrible for me. So, you know, there is a relationship there as well on that end, isn't there? Absolutely. And if you don't have motivation, if you don't have engagement, again, these are all different words, but translate to some sort of physiological reaction. Um, if you're completely disengaged and, you know, I've seen it with undergraduates, they're not there, they're not listening, nothing's going in, nothing, nothing is being, uh, you know, captured in, in the brain, learning isn't happening. So in our, um, in our training practices, it's so critical that we have the input from practitioners, from trainees that understand uh, this relationship between motivation and engagement and also the buy-in. Uh, like me as a, you know, as a scientist and academic non-police officer, you know, an officer might think, oh, well, what, she doesn't know what she's talking about. She's never done this before, but just some small things like using the, the right terminology, showing that I have an understanding of you know, the operational realities of what police work is, uh, you know, I've worked really hard to try to do that in order to, to gain the buy-in, in order to gain the, uh, that, that understanding and that perspective so that even the, the officers that I've trained in the past, they say, okay, well, she, she gets it. Or, you know, having the, the experienced trainers and officers next to us, they can connect with them in a, in a way that, that the learning sticks, the motivation is there because we're, 
saying things and showing that we understand these relationships and the operational realities of it is really, really critical to getting that buy-in. So we, we're almost calling it buy-in, but that's immediately linked to, again, the level of motivation and engagement and, and hopefully wanting to improve their skills, wanting to, to learn and train, uh, which, which thankfully is, is something that officers don't have a shortage of. Like you're a very uh, a motivated group of, of professionals that always want to be better and want to strive to be better. It's not often that, that we see officers that aren't engaged unless it's cases like this, where it's like, oh, this is just another, another training exercise, another PowerPoint presentation. That's why we really want to introduce these different types of uh, training exercises that again, increase the complexity, increase the arousal, engagement, the realism, incorporate different different elements like um, eye tracking and that kind of gadgetry that you know seems to, to really grab people's interest, but now teach, officers that this is a really useful tool. This is uncovering unconscious, implicit, automatic behaviors that we can learn from and you can directly implement into your training and build that expertise faster. That's fantastic. Well, Dr. Denona, we've been going for an hour. I can't believe it's gone already. I know. There's so much I want to get into, but that just means we're going to have to have you back. Um, no problem. I'm going to give you the opportunity here, doctor. Is there anything that you wished I would have asked you that you wanted to talk about? Uh, I, I think we we touched on the the most uh, novel and exciting stuff that I, I really wanted to to convey. So uh, so the research that we've done on situational awareness, answering some of those unanswered questions in the 2019 paper of needing definitions, needing operational, concrete, police-specific definitions for some of these concepts. I'm really proud of, of the research that I've been able to do and collaborate with, uh, with Juha Matti in Finland to, to answer some of these questions and really contribute meaningfully to uh, the issue in, in policing that, that you mentioned right from the beginning, that there's still a lack of a professional standard like across the board, across the globe, Law enforcement and policing is, you know, fundamentally it serves a, a similar function, um, and uh, and there there need to be better standards. I think even the police can can agree to that. Like, why is one service doing something than another in another jurisdiction, and uh, that potentially puts the operators, the officers, at a disadvantage and and compromises your professional safety. So. You know, the same way that we train surgeons and other people that are responsible for life or death decisions, uh, you know, I'm really committed to helping to promote the, the training standards and the professional standards for police that equips the people, the law enforcement officers that we trust to serve and protect our communities to have the same level of training and, and preparedness, uh, not only for public safety, but for their own operational safety and wellness and health as well, like looking at it really uh, holistically. So uh, maybe next time we can talk talk more about some of the other health and wellness uh, initiatives or uh, the actual breathing techniques and training that, that we offer to help regulate stress that, again, not only has a performance benefit, but also has these other general wellness and physical resilience benefits as well. That's fantastic. And I am excited to have you and, and uh, your, please pronounce his name for me again, your, your, your peer. So, 
coincidentally, my my mother is Finnish, so I have the benefit of pronouncing his name properly. But Yuhamatti uh, or or Yule, as he's affectionately known, so I'm now promising him to be on the series. And and I consulted with him yesterday with your list of questions, saying, "Oh my God, they're asking about this paper that we wrote. Dec- you know, feels like decades ago." Uh, so we, we already had a run through and, and, you know, I'm, I'm going to convince him to, to find a, a time with the time difference to, uh, to zoom in with us from Finland, but he's, he's been a very, uh, generous and, and gracious, uh, mentor and, and, uh, instructor to, to me as well. And, and, uh, and I know he's happy to answer questions. I think you can find both of our emails on the research articles and, and things like that to, to reach out with any, any questions or copies of these articles and things we're always happy to, to engage. Okay, well, we will want to have both of you on to talk about what they're doing in Finland, because again, the whole goal of Trainers Bullpen is bullpen is applied research. So it's going to be awesome to hear him talk about how they're applying all of this in uh, Finland. And I want to also have you back on to talk about IPREP and how you're yes. using the IPREP to help officers with regulation and physiological arousal and performance. So we have a lot to be uh to look forward to for the future. But I want to thank you, uh, doctor, for what you do and for making the time to be on the trainer's bullpen today. Happy to be here. Thank you so much, Chris.